Thank you, Bill. I have a lot of friends with warped senses of humor. I seem to attract them. One sent me a stack of motivational posters, you know, the kind with one big aspirational word, and then there's a sort of an, a saying underneath it, you know, kind of like, excellence, the result of caring more than others think is wise. That, that, you know, it just flutters your heart, doesn't it? Only the poster that my friend sent me, the posters were a little bit twisted, like limitations, and then the picture was of a penguin. Limitations, until you spread your wings, you have no idea how far you can walk. This was another one. Individuality. It was a picture of a snowflake. Individuality. Always remember that you are unique, just like everybody else. Motivation. If a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a pretty easy job of the kind robots will soon be doing. As I said, it's a little bit twisted. A little bit twisted. If you had a poster of the word success written on it. What would be underneath? What if your mission in life and the way that you defined success was to move into insignificance, to move into obscurity, that you would have made a difference in this world, but the difference would be either rejected or ignored or feared by those of your generation. I mean, is that a life that you would aspire to, right? Is, 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 is that the life goal that you would have? Because that was the life goal of John the Baptist. His poster would read, success. He must increase and I must decrease. John lived his life to point beyond his life to Jesus. That is true success, really, isn't it, for any Christian? That's the kind of difference that makes an eternal difference. Well, today's text that Bill just read to you, and if you were listening carefully, if you were following along, we're in Mark chapter 6, going through the Gospel of Mark, but if you were listening carefully, you were probably not hearing that text thinking, boy, this is going to be an encouraging, fun sermon, right? This is going to be a great thing. Uh, wow, the murder of John the Baptist. This is... This text, as we go through Mark's gospel, is a flashback to John's story. It's the middle part. We've talked about those Mark and sandwiches before. If you are in Mark chapter 6, look at verse 7. In Mark 6, 7, he summed the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. Now look down to verse 13. They, I'm sorry, verse 12. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing many with oil, uh, many sick people, and healing them. Now, look at chapter 30. I'm sorry, at, at uh, verse 30. John chapter... You know, I'm just getting my words wixed again today. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he took them away for debriefing. So... That is the bigger picture. Those are the two end pieces. And in the middle of this sandwich 
is the story of the murder of John the Baptist. Last week, Lewis highlighted the theme of rejection that works its way all the way through this gospel. Jesus is rejected, John the Baptist is rejected, and if we follow Jesus, we will be rejected. Another one of the themes was the gospel of repentance from sin and turning towards Jesus. That was the message of John, that was the message of Jesus, and that's to be our message. A third theme was the authority of Jesus. And that is, Jesus had authority over sickness, over demons, uh, over nature. And take a look at verse 7. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them, gave them authority. He didn't ask God for the authority to give them authority. Jesus had Follow this. He had authority over authority. That is who is coming into the world to proclaim repentance and following him. Salvation through Jesus and him alone. Now later, Jesus will tell us, all authority is given to me, therefore make disciples of all the nations. That's, that is really one of the main themes all the way through the gospel, and it is the answer to the question, who is Jesus? It's the question of his identity and the growing obsession with that question, who is Jesus, is paired by the growing fear among the rulers about the answer to that question. Now, so far in Mark, the only exposure we have had to John the Baptist has been confined to two verses. I'm just going to read them to you. Mark 1, 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's one. The next verse is Mark 1, 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Now, today's text gives us the full story of John and I want you to get this. This is the only section in the entire Gospel of Mark that's not about Jesus. But is introduced by rumors around that main question. Who is Jesus? Now, so far, all we know is after he baptized John, he was arrested. And here's the rest of the story. But before we jump into that, I want to harvest a little bit about John's background from other scriptures, and also in the historical context. If you were a first century Jew who believed scripture, then you would know that three words characterized the time in which you lived. And those three words are these, God is silent. That's it. God had been silent for over 400 years. The Jews who believed the promises of the prophets felt like God had taken a leave of absence. Where is he? The last authoritative word that you would have had was from Malachi, 400 years before. The Jewish Talmud says this, After the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. First century Jewish writer Josephus said, that is exactly true. God has stopped speaking because that's what it felt like. The Holy Spirit has departed from Israel. But the last prophet, Malachi, repeated what all the other prophets had said 
Messiah is coming. But then Malachi added this detail. Last book adds this detail and the last chapter in the last verses of the Old Testament. There is coming before the Messiah. One who will announce him. A forerunner who will call people to repentance. He is going to be another Elijah. It was an amazing promise. But still, if you're a first century Jew, whenever is, when, when, when is that ever going to happen? It still felt pretty remote, like a fairy tale. But then, John came. He preached repentance. He preached turning hearts back to God. He said the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is at hand. He is coming. And then he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by the way, later, Jesus pointed to John and said, Elijah has come. John is Elijah. Now, there are a lot of questions that we could ask about the relationship between Jesus and John. We know their mothers were related, but I just want to go in a little bit of things about them. We know their mothers were related. The King James Version says they were cousins, but the Greek word translated cousin is more elastic than that. It, it really means relative. Uh, there are other words for cousin that are more specific. And, and, and besides, Elizabeth was probably in her 50s, and Mary was 14, 15 or so, uh, betrothal age. However, we do know that Mary knew Elizabeth, and she was comfortable enough with her to find sanctuary with her and help the older woman uh, in the last months of her pregnancy with John the Baptist. Scripture tells us actually that the very first contact that Jesus and John had was prenatal, right? <laughs> they were both in the womb. Now, did they have contact with each other growing up? Here's what would have made that, what would have made that hard. The families lived about 90 miles from each other, and travel was a challenge. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were old. And Joseph and Mary ended up with at least eight children, so travel for them, 90 miles, you know, that, that's going to be prohibitive. So we're not sure. There, there may be the exception of when Jesus was taken to the temple at age 12 in Jerusalem for one of those annual feasts. Did Zechariah and Elizabeth bring John at that time? And could they have connected there? We, we really don't know. We're not told anything about it. It's interesting to think about. But here's what I am sure of. John knew who Jesus was. And John had been told that there was something different about Jesus. He was raised with stories of his own birth and his future destiny. Now, how much did he understand fully? I'm not sure, but he did know. He did know that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was the forerunner. Uh, of the four parents, only Mary lived long enough to see both boys enter adulthood and their ministries. And Jesus connected with John. Jesus was baptized by John. But that baptism may, be, may have been one of only a handful of face-to-face -face encounters that John and Jesus ever had. We, we don't know. Uh, but John knew that his destiny was entwined with Jesus, and he knew the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Now, with that background, let's follow along in our text. We're going to go back to Mark chapter 6, look at verse 14. King Herod 
heard of it. We're going to go, we're going to break this down verse by verse. King Herod heard of it. That is, the, Jesus' message was the same as John's message. And Jesus was performing miracles. Although rumors can ignore facts. And Jesus and John were separate people who lived at contemporaneous times. They overlapped. But the rumors, the rumors were spreading. King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. That is why these miraculous powers at work. What that means is not because it's John, because John performed no miracles, but rather because if John has been raised from the dead, that's the miracle of miracles that makes other miracles possible. By the way, what had Jesus just done? If you've been following along with us in this study, he had just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Miracle of resurrection. So, verse 15 tells us uh, that there are other answers to the question besides John the Baptist being raised. But others were saying he's Elijah. And others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Three wrong answers. The question, who is Jesus? Three wrong answers given in that, that uh, is the answer, is their attempts to explain the question that's in all of the Gospels, who is Jesus? Now, these are not answers that anybody who is close to Jesus would give. There are rumors floating around from those who are more remote and who don't know them or don't know anything about them. Jesus claims to forgive sin, and then he backs up that claim with an undeniable miracle. But wait a minute. If you think about it, only God can forgive sin. That's what we saw earlier. Jesus calms the wind and the seas. But wait, only God controls nature. Who is Jesus? And John the Baptist, the forerunner, points to Old Testament passages about the Messiah. And then he points to Jesus as the one his own ministry is all about. So these, the people who are, who are kind of speculating among the crowds, who is Jesus, come up with these different answers. I'm going to deal with them in reverse order. There are some who say, well, he's a prophet. Well, that's accurate in the sense that Jesus speaks forth truth, but saying Jesus is, like, is a prophet is like saying that the Grand Canyon is a really nice ditch. The scale is off. Actually, John himself was the last, and in fact, the completion of, of what we would call the Old Testament or Old Covenant prophets. So others are saying, well, Jesus is Elijah. No. Actually, not Jesus, but John embodied the ministry of Elijah. Even in today's Passover celebrations among Orthodox Jews, a chair is placed at the table for Elijah because and then later in the ceremony, they go and open the door to see if Elijah will come in because Elijah will show up before Messiah comes. But John was Elijah, not Jesus. And then there's this identification that just terrifies Herod to death. Jesus is John the Baptist, alive. Verse 16, Herod kept saying, and the verb means continuously, obsessively, neurotically, 
saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. John, whom I beheaded, continuously. Oh no, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Probably because they have the same message. And John's disciples are now following Jesus. Now, here's the thing about Herod. At this point, his conscience was charred, but it was not yet seared. And his fears were very real to him. And just like all of us, fears unchecked can trump reason every time. So the identification of Jesus and John pulls back the curtain on the whole backstory of the fate of John, starting in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent men and had arrested John and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Imagine being arrested for confronting the immoral life of a politician. Who knew that could happen? Now, let's pause for a minute and fill in some historical gaps. The thing about it is, this is what every first century Jew knew. They all knew this backstory. We don't necessarily know about it. And if, if, if Hollywood were looking for a plot line for a, a first century nauseating soap opera, truth is stranger than fiction. The Herodian dynasty was sleazy and notorious, even by Roman standards. There are several Herods. The one in our text is Herod Antipas. <clears throat> he was the brother of Herod Philip. Their father, King Herod, named all his boys Herod, not quite like George Foreman, but close. King Herod, their father, was brutal, and he had a hobby. He would kill anybody who displeased him, including his wives and even his sons. He was the king who slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem. When he died, King Herod died, his sons, the ones that were still alive, his, his sons became tetrarchs. That is, they were given Roman authority over regions. They weren't really kings, but they liked to be called kings. And our main character is Herod Antipas. The other main character is Herodias. Here's the background there. Herod Antipas had delusions of adequacy. He, he liked to be called king. Later, that did get him in trouble with Rome. Herodias was also in the Herodian family. That's why she was named Herodias. And Herodias had married her half-uncle named Herod Philip. I told you it's going to get involved. They had a daughter named Salome. Herod Antipas had married the daughter of King Aretas, who was, whose kingdom was on the other side of Perea, on the other side of the Jordan. Antipas visited his brother, Philip. And he and Herodias locked eyes and became infatuated with each other. Antipas divorced his wife, the daughter of King Aretas, which caused a war did not make him popular. 
Herodias divorced King uh, Herod Philip. Antipas's, I told you this is complicated. Antipas's brother. And they got married. All I'm saying is, with certainty, family reunions were somewhat strained. Okay. And into this mess came John the Baptist, the politically incorrect prophet. John called sin, sin. And everyone, great and small, he said, needed to repent and be saved, including Herod and Herodias. He called them out. Now, our text tells us how John's message and then John's murder impacted Herod. Verse 19, Herodias had held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John, which is why Herod wouldn't let her kill John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he had been protecting him, that is, from Herodias. John was like a spiritual pebble in her shoe that she couldn't wait to get rid of. But here's an amazing statement about Herod. When he heard him, when he heard John, he was very perplexed. Yet, he used to enjoy listening to him. Now, friends, that is one strange relationship. Why did Herod keep talking with John? Herod knew he was a righteous and holy man, the text tells us. And I think Herod was reluctant to give up the only person in his life who was willing to speak truth to him. Think about that for a moment. Most people have an awareness, maybe even a fear, that this world is not all there is. That there's something more. The huge question of destiny hangs over, I think, every one of us, every soul. What happens when you die? Am I ready for that? Is it the end? The Greek philosopher Epicurus, and, and by the way, every atheistic philosopher after him, denied that there was an afterlife. Now, here's why. Epicurus said this. What people fear most is not that death is annihilation, but that perhaps death is not annihilation. That there will be accountability and judgment. And the truth is, those without Jesus Christ have good reason to be afraid of death. Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Mark 8, Jesus said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So for those without Christ, they should hope that death does end everything. Because it's terrifying if it does not. So Herod interacts with John. So meanwhile, back at the palace, following along in verse 21, an opportune day came. So it's Herod's birthday. They are having a party. The nobles and the military commanders are there. And Salome performs a dance after they're all quite well, apparently, in their cups. Now, from historical records, Salome would have been about, ages, about age 14 or 15 here. And she performs a seductive dance, and there's just nothing good about this. Nothing good about this. He should have been protecting her, not parading her as an object of lust. 
Well, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Now, why is he doing this? He wants to make himself look extravagant and great and regal before his, uh, his uh, cabinet. She went out and said to her mother, oh, I'm sorry, and he swore to her, verse 23, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. Now, in the first place, he doesn't have a kingdom. It's not his to give. He's a Roman tetrarch, okay? But he's actually quoting Xerxes from the book of Esther because he feels like he is of the stature of the emperor of the Persian Empire. <laughs> so, up to half of my kingdom. It's a rather inflated view of himself. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Now, don't let this go unnoticed. Here you see the intolerance of people who do not want to admit sin. Who do not want to be confronted with what they know is wrong. The only Bible verse that they know is, judge not. And they take that out of context. She wanted John dead. John did not want her dead. John wanted her saved. Immediately, she came in a hurry to the king and asked, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And I want you to notice the addition of two phrases. She adds the phrase, right now. Literally, at once. This is the only time this word of immediate haste occurs in the Gospel of Mark. And the reason why she says it is because this way Herod can't back out later when the guests are not there. And he can't delay in order to somehow allow John to escape. The second phrase she adds is the, is the phrase, on a platter. <laughs> uh, she's probably looking at the feast platters on the table, and I'm guessing she doesn't want to carry just a head. Not a realistic detail. Verse 26, although the king was very sorry because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And the phrase, very sorry, is a rather rather bland translation. The only other time Mark uses this same phrase is to describe the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Herod is affected by this. It's not exactly the happy birthday party that he had hoped for. But Herod is a victim of his own choices and his charred conscience is going to become seared because that is the pattern. He would rather be bad than look bad in front of his guests. So instead of showing weakness, he surrenders to this ultimate weakness and killed the only source of truth in his life. Verse 27 tells us that the executioner went, beheaded John in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. She gave it to her mother. Happy Mother's Day. Verse 29, when the disciples heard about this, they came and carried away his body and laid it in a tomb. This is an awful story about awful people. And, and 
What about John himself? You ever wondered about him? If you were to interview John just before he was executed, I would be surprised if he, if he hadn't felt that he had failed Jesus. Because his mission was to prepare the way for Jesus, the king. But he didn't have the outcome that John would have hoped for. So far, there was no, rational, there was no national repentance. And, and so far, few people had believed in Jesus. So, wait a minute. How can my life be done? I've had only a six-month ministry. I've been in prison for almost two years. Put here by a corrupt politician and a vindictive wife. I'm the man of the wilderness confined to a dungeon. Surely my mission can't be over. And now you tell me that a seductive dance by a teenage girl was the price for getting my head cut off? As one person observed, this is not the ministry that dreams are made of. More like nightmares, I think. You know, I have never seen an advertisement for a pastor's seminar entitled, How to Succeed Like John the Baptist. But here's Jesus' verdict. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, no one born of women is greater than John the Baptist. So let's think about that. Because this passage is a study in contrast, isn't it? If you look at John in the dungeon and Herod in the palace, what do you see? From the world's point of view, John should have been afraid of Herod. But our text tells us what? Herod is afraid of John. John refused to compromise what he believed, and he refused to say what would please Herod, or better, Herodias, I think, in order to get himself out of trouble. By contrast, Herod refused to stand for truth and instead compromised everything to stay in power and to look good in front of his cabinet. John lost his life but gained it. Herod lost his soul. The question is not which place you'd rather be, dungeon or palace, but which place you'd rather be, heaven or hell. Or maybe which person standing before God you'd rather be, Herod or John. John's short life was a living sermon. He must increase and I must decrease. Herod's long life was a living blasphemy. John left a legacy of disciples, by the way. They followed Jesus, but some had already gone out with the same message and it did not were not aware of the fulfillment of what had happened with Jesus, so that 20 years later, Paul encounters disciples of John in Ephesus. Quite a legacy John had. Herod also had a legacy. One day, he did meet Jesus face to face. You know what he did? He mocked him. His conscience was no longer charred. It was now seared and gone. There is an epilogue to his story. A few years later, 
he was persuaded by Herodias to go to Rome and appear before Emperor Caligula in order to ask for the title king. Caligula, Caligula felt that Herod was becoming way too ambitious and instead ordered him exiled to Gaul for the rest of his life. Herod's life was all about Herod. John's life was all about Jesus. Where do you, where do you see yourself in this? I have to ask myself, is my life all about me? When you ask most people questions about themselves, they open up about their favorite subject. Tell me about yourself. Oh, I'll tell you about me and me and me. But if you were to ask John, John, tell us about you. John would say, no, I don't really want to. I want to tell you about Jesus. It's interesting, in John chapter 1, there are three replies that John gives to the question, tell us truly, are you the Messiah? His first reply is, I am not the Messiah. His second reply is, I am not. His third reply is, no. <laughs> Getting a little shorter there. John was just not all that interested in John. But if you were to say, John, tell us about Jesus. John's answer would be, pull up a chair. My favorite subject. I am just a voice crying in the wilderness. He is the Word, the Logos, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we leave this passage and this study today, I want you to think with me about three challenges. And this is for, for those here, for, for those who are listening online, for those who are in the pavilion. Here's the first challenge. Am I pointing people to Jesus? Do, do I love people enough to tell them the truth? As Paul called it, speaking the truth in love. Am I preparing the way for the Lord? Removing obstacles that hinder other people from accepting him? Or is my favorite subject me? Is my faith in Jesus evident in my business practices? In the way I treat people in the grocery store line? In the way I live at school? In the way I treat my wife in front of my children? And the way I treat my children? Am I putting down stepping stones in my children's path to the Lord or stumbling blocks? Another way of asking the question is this. Do people see me in me or Christ in me? Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Do people see me in me or do they see Christ in me? He must increase, I must decrease. My brother-in-law Don Lasley died Wednesday night. He loved my sister until the end of her life. And then he continued to love Jesus until the end of his. He was a Baptist preacher. 
And the chief topic of conversation when you were around Don, other than some really, really, really corny jokes, were the Bible and theology. When I visited Don uh, after church two weeks ago, I went to his bedside. And uh, you know what he talked to me about? About a series of sermons that he was preparing to exalt Jesus. Don finished well, faithful to the end, pointing others to Jesus. And that, my friends, is success for any Christian. To have your life point beyond your life to eternal life in Jesus. As I said, if John had a motivational poster with the word success, then the saying would read, he must increase, I must decrease. John lived his life to point beyond his life to Jesus. Here's the second challenge. And this is especially for our young people here. I'm so glad that, that you're in here because I, I want to say this to you. You have access to temptations and opportunities to do things that did not exist 20 years ago. Your parents will try to be vigilant. They will be very careful with you. That is their job. God holds them accountable for doing that. Okay? So that's, that's, your, your complaint is not with them, but with God on that one. And they love you. But we all know that if you want to give, to give in to peer pressure, you will have plenty of opportunities to do that. Giving in takes no courage. It takes courage to stand, especially if it means standing alone against peer pressure. As you think about John, here's a question that I have asked you in the past over the years. Um, and, and, and I want you to think about this because it's been a number of years since I've asked you this question. Let's say that you're 17 years old, Okay. Let's just say that you're 17. What do you want people to think about you when you are 25? How do you want to be regarded? What do you want to see at that age when you look in the mirror? Because right now, every day, you are becoming that person. You don't wake up at 24 and a half and suddenly say, wait a minute, I think today I'll start this new path of recreating myself, a new work ethic, a new set of skills, a new personality, a new reputation, new friends, new relationships, new habits. It just doesn't work that way because the decisions you're making right now are part of the character that you're forming. Live your life without compromise of truth. Even when it takes the courage, when it means the courage to stand alone. And when, when you stand alone, sometimes people will be kind of like Herod and want to talk to you about it. They'll appreciate the fact that they, they just respect you. They really do respect you. But later, even their conscience may be seared and they may eventually want to have nothing to do with you. Like when Jesus stood before Herod, he mocked him. That could be the price. That can happen. And in fact, I will promise you, from my experience, it will happen. But you want to live so that later you can look back and say, thank you, God. No regrets. No regrets. No regrets. Now, we all regret plenty of stuff. But what is the trajectory of your life? Here's the third challenge. 
My third challenge is for those who are here today or listening online or listening in the pavilion who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. First of all, I am so glad <laughs> you're here. Just delighted that you're here. And, and I would like for you to look around because what you see in here is a local part of what the Bible calls the body of Christ. We are flawed. We have our blind spots. We have blemishes. We are very imperfect people. Well, I am. And yes, I know some of you. We're very imperfect people. But I hope we don't pretend to be otherwise. I, I hope that we understand that we're on a journey together to follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord. But here's my concern. If you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you assume that God loves everyone because that's God's job, and God lets everybody into heaven because that's also God's job, that is simply not true. Remember what Epicurus said? What people fear is not that death brings annihilation, but that perhaps it doesn't. What people fear is that there is something beyond death that's eternal. And that they're accountable, but not yet ready to face. I've quoted a verse to you a couple of times already, and now I'm going to quote the entire verse because I was selective. Matthew 11, 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Here's the rest of the verse that I didn't quote. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Because when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the covering of Christ's righteousness, not John's, not your own good work, not even John's personal righteousness. John couldn't enter heaven on his own merits, but by faith, John embraced the Lamb of God who takes away, who covers the sins of the world so that John had, by faith, a relationship with Jesus Christ, including and, and that John's sins were paid for on the cross, just as mine were paid for on the cross, just as yours were paid for on the cross. If this challenge rings true to you, I'd love to talk with you about it. Our hope is that you would see the truth of the gospel. God became flesh so that he could, as flesh, pay the penalty for sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By grace, through faith, plus nothing. And then, on that journey, after you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is joy, there is fulfillment, and there is an amazing life in which He must increase and I must decrease. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of John the Baptist. And I ask, Lord, that we would take to heart
two very different stories. And that our heart's desire would be to honor you, to love you, and to have you increase. 